Hi everyone and welcome to the Pama podcast. Uh, I am James Prescott, um, your regular host. Um, you all know me. I'm not actually hosting this episode today. Um, one of my best friends in the world is hosting this episode and she'll tell you why in a minute. So uh, welcome our host today, Becky Castle-Miller. Hi, my name is Becky. As James said, I'm a friend of his. I'm an American who spent time living in Europe, which is where James and I connected. And I love the power of story to bring healing. So James asked me today to interview him about his story to help put it all together, process it, and prepare for writing his book. So James, uh, every, every hero's starty, (laughs) every hero's story starts with an inciting incident. So in your story of growth and healing, what was the moment that your story began? When did you decide that you were going to become a person who grows toward healing? Yeah, that, that was a major, this was a major moment in my life and I remember it. Very vividly. I was uh, at a home group meeting uh, in my church. I think it was around November 2015. Uh, I have no idea what we talked about that night at all. But I remember a feeling in my body just getting more and more frustrated. All this emotion was building up. All this tension. All this energy. It was just coming, it was just boiling up and it was taking control of my body uh, and it had to come out and and it did. I remember, you know, it was a small lounge with people were drinking tea and coffee, there were biscuits out, it was in the the front room of a lounge of a member of my church, a really safe place for me, Um, people that I loved. and yeah, I was sitting on this sofa, it's a very comfortable soft sofa. And and yeah, suddenly I don't know where how it all started, but I just I just started talking and all this stuff started coming out. And physically I felt myself almost pinned back onto the sofa. I could feel this energy coming out of my body. It wasn't just, it wasn't just words. I could literally feel it in my body, in my chest, um, like this pain, trauma, grief, hurt, uh, frustration, anger. All of it was just physically coming out of my body, um, and I was talking and expressing things, but it was way more than what I was talking about that was coming out. And it was, it was, it was almost like I was aware of, I think I was seeing what was, what was seeing everything in the room, but was almost disconnected from it in that it was just coming out of me. And this went on for about five, six, seven minutes, maybe even 10 minutes. I can't remember how long, to be honest. Uh, and it just, just came out and it was like, like this energy was, was just, it was like uh, an exorcism almost. <laughs> um, it was um, 
<laughs> you know, like the beginning of a regeneration in Doctor Who, just this energy exploding out of me. And uh, and at the end of that, everybody noticed my my body language was different, that it was like a pressure valve had been released. It turned out that my friends had noticed this tension in me for a while. Um, and they'd even been praying for me that it would, that, that this, this would, something like this would happen. Uh, and, and then, and that, I think they thought, and we'll get on to why they thought this later, but they thought, I think that that was it. <laughs> um, that that's all I needed to do. I knew in myself that this was, this wasn't, this wasn't it. This was just the beginning of something that I knew I needed to do something. I knew I needed to take action that I couldn't continue as I was at that point, that I needed to take steps to get, to really get healed because I knew I was carrying, I'd been carrying a lot of stuff that I just ignored. Uh, and that had worked for me for a while, but it wasn't going to work anymore. And I had to do something. Um, I had no idea of what lay ahead of me, uh, but I knew I needed to do something and that I needed to, to do some work of, of healing and um, and that I couldn't stay as I was. So what was the decision that you made in that moment? Well, initially my decision was, okay, I'll get, I'm going to get a spiritual director um, who I can talk this through with, because at the time it felt like it was, at the time it was more of a, it was more a faith deconstruction thing. I think it was my frustration with toxic religion, with fundamentalism, with religious certainty, with legalism and all of those things. That's what I thought it was. That's all I thought it was. But it wasn't just that. In hindsight, (laughs) I can see it wasn't just that. It was a whole load of other things. That was just the surface stuff. Um, And that's why I went to a spiritual director first. Um, funnily enough, my spiritual director was a qualified therapist, is a qualified therapist. I still, I'm still with my spiritual director. Um, so that had a double meaning, I suspect. I don't think that was a coincidence. Um, so that was the, that was the next step. Uh, and I remember a few weeks after that first incident getting prayed for in a home group and just having this picture in my head of me at the top of this mountain with um, a man, I assume it was Jesus, um, next to me, like looking down into this valley. Uh, and there was this valley and it was really dark and there were all these dark clouds and you couldn't see where to go, what it was like down there, um, or the, what the way through was. But I knew I had to go there. I knew I had to go there, and I, I really felt like the divine saying that to me, like, you know, you have to do this, don't you? I was, you know, and it was, I had a choice technically, but I knew I didn't really have a choice. Um, and then that was it, you know, and that was, and that's, you know, the next day I found a spiritual director, and, and a few months later we started meeting, and that was, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the journey, and it, 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 that, it, yeah, it took me on a lot of different places, which we'll talk about later. But um, 
Yeah, that was the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you that was the inciting incident, I think. You set out on a path of healing. But if this were a film, we would be going into a flashback sequence. So imagine it black and white or sepia tone or whatever you prefer. What's what's your aesthetic for flashbacks, James? How should we picture this next? Uh, Yeah, cinematography would change, I think, slightly. Yeah, for flashbacks. Okay, so we'll change the color tone of we're going into flashback sequence. So you said all of this tension started coming out of you and you realized you needed to heal. But let's go back and talk about what you needed to heal from. What are all the things that built up that tension and pain that then you needed to deconstruct from? So let's go back to childhood and walk us through chronologically the moments in your childhood that led up to this tension and crisis moment as an adult. Yeah, (laughs) that's kind of, yeah, that's a long story. So yeah, going back to when I was eight years old, um, when I was eight years old, I, I had, you know, grown up in a family with quite a stable family. We were quite happy, um, living in a town just outside of London. Um, and yeah, everything was great. I had, you know, my, had my my younger sister who was four years old at the time. My parents were very happily married. Uh, My dad had a kind of stable job. My, my mother was about to go back to, to teaching. She was a French teacher. She was, my sister was about to start school. Um, and so she was going to go back to teaching and have a career in teaching and be head of French and things. And it was all looking really, really good. And home was a safe place. And it was, it was, it was, it was great. You know, things were really great. Um, and then April the 1st, 1985, which was the Monday of Holy Week, uh, actually that week, my mother had an asthma attack. Um, so now I need to explain this in more detail. Um, it was a really serious asthma attack as in it, it could have killed her, um, and very nearly did kill her. Um, but the key bit for me in this story is I was eight years old, a highly sensitive, introverted child. In hindsight, I um, had ASD, I still do, autism spectrum disorder, and ADHD. Um, so, I'm, although this was undiagnosed at the time and not really known about because this was the 80s. Um, and so I, I, I came downstairs and I walked into the front room. Uh, for some reason, the lights were off. And it was the evening. I don't know why the lights were off. But my mother was sitting on a chair. And it was just me and her in the room. And she was sitting on this chair completely still. Like she wasn't even breathing. Uh, And her skin was kind of blue almost. um, And yeah. (laughs) She was basically dying in front of me uh, at that point. Uh, and so I'm standing there, eight years old, seeing this happen with my mother. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, um, these uh, the ambulance people came in with uh, their stretcher and put her on the stretcher and took her out. And my, my dad basically followed them. 
I didn't get any explanation as to what was happening or where they were going or what, or what was wrong with her or if she was going to survive or, or anything. It just happened really, really quickly. Uh, and, you know, within, you know, really, really quickly, my dad was gone. My, you know, my mother had gone. Um, uh, a babysitter had arrived um, and uh, who was a neighbor had arrived to, to take care of us. Uh, and that was it. And, you know, I was... I didn't. I didn't realize till recently how traumatizing that would have been for me. Um, my sister was asleep, so I had no idea what's going on um, at all. Um, and yeah, this was really traumatic. And I'm only really just exploring this and how it impacted me. But certainly, a lot of abandonment trauma, um, trust issues, feeling safe. Um, you know, you know, blaming myself, I suppose, um, might have happened. Um, yeah, and I was, that was it. And I, for the next month or so, I had babysitters every night. Um, my dad was going to visit my mother in hospital. Um, mother was in hospital, obviously. She she did very nearly die. They didn't, the doctors didn't think she would make the night. Um, they, my dad phoned my uncle, her brother, to tell her to come down and prepare, bring clothes for a funeral because they all thought she was going to die. Uh, um, and she was on a ventilator. Um, my dad told me how he upset he was. He was just sitting in the hospital thinking about how he was going to bring up two little children on his own. Um, and uh, then, then she woke up. And uh, she rung my dad, and um, and she said, "I'm back." Um, and he said, "Where have you been?" <laughs> um, he said, "Oh, I've been with Jesus by Galilee, and He sent me back." Wow. You know, this is what she said to him. Um, and she told me about years later. She told me this about what it was. It was a very real experience for her. Um, he was describing a lot of detail what happened. Um, I'm sure that had an influence on my faith journey. That story. Um, uh, yeah, and the the problem was, my mother had had bad brain damage, um, the lack of oxygen mm-hmm. to her brain. Um, she had lost her short the use of her short term memory. It was severely damaged. Um, everything else was 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 perfectly normal. Her long term memory was normal. Everything else, all the other cognitive functions were perfectly normal and undamaged. Um, um, her intellect, she still remembered all her French. She was still fluent in French. Um, all of that was still there, but she just didn't have a short term memory. And it to start with, it was so bad that my dad would go and visit her um, and have a conversation with her and then go and go to the toilet, come back, you know, talk to the doctor, come back 15 minutes later. She'd forgotten that he'd even been there. Um, It got a lot better than that. A lot better. Um, She did make a partial recovery, but she never got her, her, her long term memory, short term memory back. Um, She had a lot of therapy um, um, she saw psychiatrists, psychologists, and people. I think 
She wrote a lot of poetry as part of her therapy as well uh, because she was quite a creative person. <laughs> um, that's where I get it from, I think. <laughs> so, but in that moment, really, everything in our everything in our family changed. Everything in my life changed. My whole life pivoted really on that incident, that that period, mm-hmm. and um, I can't even begin to understand even yet the the impact it had on me i'm still learning about the impact it had on me um but without question the kind of you know being a shy sensitive introverted um little boy on your you know with mild asd and adhd that would have been severely traumatizing and i would have probably internalized all of it and didn't even think about it consciously um didn't get any mental health support didn't get any therapy didn't get any any opportunity to talk about my feelings or anything like that that you would have got nowadays didn't get any support from social services really uh nothing you know this is 1980 this wasn't really taken seriously like that um so yeah and my mother my mother came back and although yeah and in one sense she was she was still my mother in terms of she, you know, we still had our relationship. She was still the same personality, same character, um, same values, same mannerisms. Um, you know, um, she was still her in that sense. But in another sense, she was a completely different person because she now was not as independent. She couldn't work anymore. There's no way she would she could go back to work, uh, and she couldn't meet my needs in the same way. Um. It was like a bereavement. Mm-hmm. How did your family dynamics on a broader scale change at that point? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, um, I think I took it on myself as the eldest to take care of everybody else. I felt like it's my job to take care of everybody else. It doesn't matter about me. It doesn't matter what happens to me. Um, what matters is everybody is, is me making sure everyone else is okay. Um, everyone, um, including my parents, um, I have to take responsibility for this. You know, <laughs> you know, um, this isn't anything I process consciously at the time, of course, but subconsciously, that's probably I think that's what happened. Um, and yeah, I. Yeah, it was, you know, we had to we had to learn to understand and live with mum as she had be, as she was, and to support her, um, you know, and help her remember things, and help her find ways of remembering things. She carried a diary from then on, which she wrote things in, which was basically her short term memory. Um, yeah, the equivalent of like having a phone now and writing all your stuff on it in notes would be the equivalent now um yeah and we had to help her with that i remember she had more asthma attacks you know uh she could have there was other period other times she could have died i remember being 10 years old this is two years after the first incident and my dad was giving her mouth to mouth on the bed and i had to go down and call the ambulance mm-hmm. in my pajamas wow. i was 10 years old yeah. um I'll never forget that. I can picture it now. Um, 
and I didn't feel anything when I did it. I was just, it was just, this is normal. This is what it's like. This is what I have to do. This is how life is now. Um, I didn't realize that it was that calling an ambulance to, um, to save your mother's life was a age inappropriate thing. <laughs> um, I don't think my dad wanted me to do that, but he had no choice because if, if, because he had to give a mouth to mouth to keep her alive. So um, that's the only reason that he asked me to do that. Um, uh, Cause I couldn't give her mouth to mouth. And if nobody did, then she would have died. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that sort of thing happened. She was routinely in hospital for asthma. Uh, this became a normal thing. So hospitals became normal, normalized, you know, um, uh, in fact, a year after my mother's attack, I developed epilepsy. Um, now, I think I had epilepsy anyway, but um, but you know, you could you could argue that the trauma kind of may have sped it up. I don't know. Um, who knows? Uh, but yeah, so the whole thing changed. Yeah, everything changed, and as I became a teenager, it got it got steadily worse. Um, because my mother became quite depressed because she was a very independent woman, still highly intelligent. Uh, that, that hadn't changed. Um, still had the desire to be independent, uh, and got frustrated and depressed. Um, some people in my, in the church we were in, I remember there was an incident where they were talking to her like she was stupid, which she wasn't. And my dad got really upset with them and said, she's not stupid. She just lost her memory. Um, I think that depressed her. And there's people in our church as well, which, which is unacceptable. Um, and yeah, she got depressed and she was at home on her own. When my sister and I were at school and my dad was at work. Um, and so of course she became depressed and, and lonely. Um, and fell into alcoholism, um, which I'm sure is partly to do with her having a drink and then forgetting she'd had a drink and having another one, thinking it was her first one. Um, that's probably how it started. But it got very, very bad. Um, it got very, very bad. Um, and uh, at this point, I was getting bullied, at, psychologically bullied at secondary school which was, I hated going to school, apart from my English classes. <laughs> um, I loved English. Uh, it's my favourite subject. Um, it's what I was always good at. And we'll get onto that later. <laughs> but, yeah, that was happening to me at school. And then I would come home, my mum would be drunk. And and when she was drunk, she could be quite aggressive. Um, and my dad would get home from work and they'd probably have a fight. And I'd probably have to break it up. Um, this is when I was a teenager, a young teenager. Um, my needs weren't recognised. Um, I never got asked how I was. Never got, you know, not, not very often. Um, it was it was basically neglect, and it was. Um, and I don't I don't blame my parents for it. Um, they were they're not bad people. Um, they never were bad people. They were both struggling. My dad was having to carry the whole family emotionally. He was having to carry the whole family financially. 
uh, and you know he had to take care of my mother as well in some respects and also I think for him it's important to remember that she was I think that she was not the person that he'd married anymore uh, in some ways and and that was that was very difficult for him and he was under a lot of stress himself he was carrying a lot of stress himself and wasn't getting any emotional support wasn't getting therapy wasn't getting counseling or anything wasn't getting any help which he should have got um and that's a toxic mix the whole thing so it was quite a violent home and i didn't really have anyone to talk to i had a few friends but they weren't so but you know i didn't talk about my problems with friends i didn't talk about what happened in home in home with friends um just because I, I don't know, maybe I was ashamed or I didn't want people to know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was my teenage years. It was really traumatic, really traumatic. Um, I I had found my faith by then. I was going to church regularly. Uh, I was in a Methodist church. I'd been confirmed in a Methodist church. Um so my faith was was growing, but I was a bit of a social outcast, even at church. I didn't really fit in. I was always, you know, and I'm, this is I'm sure this is partly down to, in hindsight, to being ASD and being highly sensitive and being ADHD and stuff and not picking up social cues and all of that. Um, definitely part of it. Uh, but, but yeah, it was, oh, it was a tough time. And all of that seems to blend into one. I don't. I blanked out a lot of it from my memory. Um, there were times, there were occasions where I was on the end of physical chastisement. Um, I won't talk about that too much, out of respect to people involved, because there was no in, no intent behind it, and it wasn't abusive. It was. Uh, it was. There was a certain context to it. Um, but it was traumatic, you know, it was, um, the whole thing was really traumatic and, uh, I, I just wanted, I just wanted them to, I just wanted them to end their marriage so that it could be over. Um, I wanted them to break up. So I wanted them to move out so that we didn't have to deal with this every single day. And of course I felt it was my responsibility to take care of them and, you know, to keep them safe and to stop this happening and stuff. And so I blamed myself probably at the time for what was happening. Uh, and felt it was my fault and that, you know, I should should have been able to save them, protect them. Uh, couldn't. My dad told me the day after my last exam when I was at school, when I was 18, that he was leaving. Um and I was, I remember feeling really relieved because <laughs> um, it was finally going to be over. And uh, he told me subsequently that he was scared of what might happen if he stayed. Um, he was scared of what was happening to him and who he was becoming. He was scared of the impact it was happening, having or having on us. And um, 
um, and he cared about my mother too much to stay. Um, that he realised that, that him being around was not good for her uh, anymore, and so um, yeah, their marriage ended, and I was relieved. I went to university six months later, um, um, but that summer was that summer was actually quite enjoyable because I we were just able to have fun in the house, and it was quite a, quite a warm summer and. There wasn't any of this any of this stuff happening in the house, but you know the damage had been done by then. It had been going on for years, literally years, and uh, and then I went to university. Um, so that was that. That was my childhood. Um, yeah. Can you talk about your mother's death? Yes, yes, yes. I can. Um, so I went to university and uh, 18, went there for three years. It was really great. I found a great church, found a great Christian union. I um, got involved with that. It was the kind of time of the Toronto blessing. So a lot of that stuff was happening. Quite evangelical, I guess. Well, I wasn't really into theology or anything. I didn't know what I believed about certain things. Um and it was great for me. It was great to get away and, you know, find my own space and my own people, my own friends, friends and, and in a space I wasn't going to get bullied. And that was really great. Uh, and I came back and I got a job. And, yeah, um, I was living in a kind of um, studio place uh, at that point. Um, I was... You know, and so I was 23 by the time by the time this happened with my mother. Um, by that time, my parents were getting on really well. Um, my mother had got into recovery, um, so she was doing a lot better. Um, and you know, we were all getting on a lot better. Uh, my sister went traveling to Thailand. Um, the last time my mother saw her was at the airport to say goodbye. Um, <laughs> to say goodbye forever. Um, and actually, my dad remembers that she was quite quiet in the car leaving the airport. And she wasn't normally quiet. Um, so, uh, and then the week, the week before she met my dad for drinks in a pub and they obviously she didn't have a drink, but um, they had a drink together. They had some time together and reminisced about good times um, and talked about us and me and my sister and how we were doing and things. And so they were getting on really well. Um, my, and then um, the night before she died, she came to my place and dropped off a ton of epilepsy medication. And I still, I still to this day have no idea how she got hold of it <laughs> um, because she had no authorization to get my med epilepsy medication, but she just had these like bags of medication, right? And I, I was really bad at taking my medication at that point, which I think is an ADHD thing now, hindsight. Um, and uh, she dropped those things off and um, 
I can't remember what we talked about, but we just had a little conversation and um, she gave me a big hug. Um, and she was, my mother, after this, my mother was five foot two and quite, quite slim built. And so she fit on, I'm kind of five foot 11. So she basically, her whole body fit in underneath my neck. So when she gave me a hug, it was like, it was like her whole body was, was, under was was underneath my my neck and we had this it was it was it was an extra long hug and it was really lovely um yeah um that was uh, and then she left and i saw her leave uh, and that was the last time i saw her alive um uh we looked at her diary that she, you know, the diary I talked about after she died. And it turned out that in her diary, there were a lot of messages remind James to make my funeral a happy one. Like for the weeks before she died and even dates after she died. <laughs> um, I, I do believe that she was aware that she didn't have long. Um, I mean, she's had a lot of asthma attacks since the big one I talked about. Her body was not uh, in good shape. Um, she knew she probably couldn't survive another big asthma attack. Uh, and she had another big asthma attack. Um, and there was, there was, there was no way to save her. Uh, um, nothing anybody could, could do, um, uh, it happened at she happened at seven thirty in the morning on the Saturday, the twenty ninth of April, two thousand, and I got a phone call from my dad at eight thirty, which woke me up. So I was lying in bed, asleep, and got woken up by a phone call, which is always going to wake you up with a bit of a, a jolt. Um, and then my dad just told me in a very quiet voice that my mother passed away, and. So I then went into shock, I think. Um, I can remember it. Um, looking back, it was... I immediately went into shock and defensive mode. And it's my job to protect everybody mode. Um, it's my job to be strong for everybody mode. Um, and we went to the hospital and my dad wanted me to go to the hospital to see her body because... Uh, I think he knew that I needed to see it. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have believed it. Uh, and I did, and I saw the body. And it's it's quite a surreal experience. <laughs> um, it's not one I would wish on people. Um, but I saw the body, and it was not her. I knew it was not her. It was her body, where she had lived, but it was not my mother. And that helped, knowing that. Um, yeah, um, it's strange how you can look at a body that you've known your whole life and, but you know, it's not that person. <laughs> um, you know, her consciousness had, had gone. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, so I basically went back to her house with my dad and, he broke down and I gave him a hug. Um, I didn't, I didn't cry. 
<laughs> I didn't cry for 10 days. Um, uh, but my dad, my dad's quite an emotional person. And, you know, uh, obviously they've been married for 25 years and um, been through a lot together. So, um, yeah, it was, it was hard for him. It was hard for him. And, uh, yeah, and so we just got on with things. And um, it's a bit of a blurb. I was meant to be going out with my friends that evening uh, for drinks at the pub. And uh, I was not. I was. I was going to not go because I just, you know, thought, well, I, I can't go. Um, and it was friends that knew my mother quite well. It's friends I'd grown up with from school, um, and they knew my, they knew my mother quite well and had a relationship with her. And so they would have. They would probably would have heard what happened. And my dad said, "Just go. Just go. You need to go. You need to get. Out. You need to get out of your head. You need to just get this, get, get yourself away from this for a bit." clear your head um and actually he was right uh i went and hung out with my friends i told them what happened they were all really sorry and really sympathetic and really supportive and but we also had a few laughs as well and a few jokes and normal conversation which is what i needed uh and you know my sister then my dad had to tell my sister who was in thailand he had to ring her and tell her over the phone and she had to fly back from Thailand on her own, um, which I'm not. I'm not going to talk about much because that's her story. But um, she came back, and she came back, and we just started to prepare the funeral. And uh, yeah, ten days after she died, um, we were preparing the funeral. We were doing the music. The music is always quite an emotional thing for me. Um, it connects with parts of me that other things can't, and we put on we put on the song, um, and you, the song we were going to play when she when the coffin was taken out, and we you knew you knew we knew it was the song as soon as we put it on, and I just broke down, I just broke down completely, uh, I went to pieces, I couldn't uh, hold it in anymore, um, and I apologised to my sister and my dad for crying. My sister said, don't apologize. This is good. You need to cry more. <laughs> um, it's okay to cry, you know. Um, and I'm really grateful my sister said that. Uh, and so I did. I cried and started crying more. And we had the funeral and, you know, and that was that. Was that. And she was gone. How did your relationship with your dad and sister change after that? Yeah, we became a lot closer, a lot closer, um, a lot closer. It was, uh, it brought us together. Uh, it was almost like we became a little team, you know, all supporting each other. Me and my sister had always been quite close anyway, um, but, that brought us really close um, and we're still really close now. We've never had a big falling out, really. We've had disagreements and things, but um, we've never never had any kind of falling out at all, really. We're, we're really close um, and I'm grateful for that. And we're still close with my dad now. You know, it's um, 
we're still a we're still kind of a little team. <laughs> well, we're slightly bigger now because my sister has children and a partner, but but we're still a, we're still a team. Yeah. <laughs> so that was so it was that was a positive to come out of it, I guess. Was that yeah? That was in two thousand, and your growth journey started in 2015 so what were the main points between in that 15 years that is you you had a lot of childhood trauma and as a young adult in addition to a lot of difficulties from being neurodivergent in a world that didn't know how to care for you but what were the additional pain points that happened between then 2000 and 2015 when you decided to take that spiritual and emotional journey of health well, yeah, and this is interesting because I, for five years, I didn't decide to do anything, and um, I had a bit of counselling. Um, I did a gap year with Youth with a Mission, um, which taught me a lot about myself, <laughs> and also awoke me to the possibility of, of of writing because I discovered that gift that year. Um, and was told to that I needed to explore this, which we'll get onto later in terms of writing as a duty and calling and obligation and everything. But because it set that in motion, um, so that started. Uh, I didn't really question. I I was. I think I I carried questions right from where my mother died. I think I didn't. I wasn't conscious of them or wasn't aware of them for you know, three or four years, but they were there. I think the God that I had grown up with was no longer big enough for my lived experience. Um, uh, and the thing that really set me going was five years later. I was 2005? A, yeah, 2005. I was a Christian summer camp thing. Um quite an evangelical one actually in hindsight but i i was going through the marketplace you know the kind of shop they had on site and i saw these i saw these videos playing and they looked really cool they looked like they were quite well designed they looked quite modern they looked different and i was curious about them uh and they were the numa dvds and i bought a couple of them and then I saw a book by the guy who had made these videos, Rob Bell, um, um, who's a big part of my story. <laughs> um, and I bought Velvet Elvis and I went back to my tent and I opened up the book and I literally didn't move for two hours. I, I read this book cover to cover in two hours. It was like oxygen. It was like, oh, right. I'm actually allowed to have all these questions. It's actually okay to have all these questions and doubts and to want to explore things and not just take things as they, as they are and have been. Um, it's okay. Uh, and it was such a relief. And you know, it was like I, I was breathing out. It was like, right. Okay. This is good. I can, I don't have to stick, just stick with this Christianity that I've had. Uh, I can, I can go somewhere different, and and that that autumn I found a, a new church, which was quite a, contem, which was not contemplated. It was quite a, 
what was called the emerging church at the at the time. So there was a lot of that questioning, doubt, exploration, mystery, you know, um, much more progressive theology. Uh, and I went there and I, I felt at home the minute I went there. And uh, that allowed me to explore more liturgical things, um, like Celtic liturgies and things and all that kind of, which I really connected with. Um, and so, I mean, I guess you could call that my first deconstruction. <laughs> um, I have a weird story in terms of faith. In that I grew up in the Methodist church, which was, which, which for, which is relatively progressive. Uh, the one I went to, we had women, we had women in leadership, we had women ministers, we had women preaching in the eighties, even eighties uh, and nineties. You know. Um, I don't know much about the theology, but in that sense, it was quite progressive. Um, I was never, then I went to university and I was more kind of brought into kind of evangelical Christianity at university, which is kind of normal. Um, <laughs> uh, was at the time anyway, let's put it that way. And kind of the whole purity culture and no sex before marriage and all of those things. Um, but now I'm starting to question all of this, everything. Um, not everything yet. There were some things I still wasn't questioning, but I was definitely on that path. And I think uh, over that period, I started to grow and I just kept growing. I just kept going. I didn't stop. Um what I did, I think what in hindsight happened is I found a form of certainty, um, a progressive form of certainty, um, which ultimately wasn't healthy. I got a, I got a very stable job working um, in like a government related job. I, um, with a pension and, you know, job security, I bought my own place with my mother's inheritance and, selling her house um and that was really positive for me um like choosing my own place choosing my own identity choosing where i wanted to live all of that was really positive um but it was all a form of certainty as well and all this time i knew i was still carrying something uh i still had a bit of anger that came up from time to time um a lot of this i think was probably asd in my adhd which again still wasn't wasn't diagnosed, um, but was being covered up with religious certainty, um, and it was although it was healthy for me for a while, um, it became less so, uh, and the and, you know at this point I was starting to have theological beliefs as well. I was um, I was. LGBTQ inclusive, you know, about 10, 10 years ago is when I realized I was. I, I realized I always have been, actually. I'd never really made a theological decision about it, but I just I just kind of got along with everybody else. And But when I made a decision, it was just, well, of course everyone's included. Of course everyone's equal. You know, it's just common sense. Um, and... Yeah, that set me on a different path to some people that I knew in my church. Um, but one thing that happened actually, which was really sad, and is that the pastor um, 
the parents of my then pastor both died um, in the space of six months. And at the time I had this, I was already beginning to understand that you either go from grief into certainty and cover it up with certainty or you actually go into it and feel it and experience it and do the work. Uh, and I always was beginning to understand this. And I was worried uh, about what my pastor would choose to do, and he chose certainty. And so our church completely changed overnight. It became became much more fundamentalist. It became much more um, evangelical, you know, much more certainty, um, not questioning anything. Um, and I felt more and more disconnected from it. Uh, I was in a really great home group, which was still a space where I could still ask questions, which was positive, um, with some people that I really loved. Um, and really, that was, that was my, that became kind of my real church, (laughs) um, more than the Sundays, um. But it slowly got worse, and I. It was getting to the point where I. Where I was not able to go into the services. Um, and even two years before this, I'd met someone for lunch, and actually said, just, without even thinking, maybe I should leave my church. And I'd never considered that before, and it just came out, and I was like, did I say that? Like, did I say leave my church? Because I hadn't even considered it. You know, I thought, oh, I'm going to be there for that's it. That's my church for life, you know. Uh, but yeah, within the, in the next two years, I realized, oh, you know, um, I had to. This was after, and I mean, we're getting into after the event, uh, the inciting incident now, but um, it was kind of in this, I think this is where this frustration was coming from that led to this inciting incident that I was getting more and more concerned about the church moving into certainty and I was not. And I realized that theologically I was, I was miles apart from a lot of people in that church. And I was concerned about where it was going. And I was concerned that I, you know, so there was all of those things that were boiling up in me, but it wasn't just those things. It was my trauma as well. Um, And also in that time, I went through a major trauma in relation to my writing because um, I'd been, I've been blogging regularly by then uh, for about ten years since that. Since I started blogging in two thousand and three, I think, uh, and I just kept doing it. And I started taking it more seriously. And I'd written some eBooks and self-published those, and they've been really great. Uh, I'd written the draft of what became the book that I pub- that I published. Uh, and that was all going really well, and I was on fire, and I was just writing, writing, writing. I couldn't stop writing. And and then this guy took my ideas and used them to make money and used them, used them in, in his book, stabbed me in the back because he'd been a mentor to me and a friend and somebody I trusted. Uh, and that absolutely killed my love of writing. It was, it was like it was a major trauma. It was like somebody had ripped, had come up from behind, stabbed me in the heart and taken my heart out from inside of me um, and taken a piece of me out without my consent. 
And ironically, that may have been the trigger that pushed me over the edge in terms of I can't, my body can't contain all this trauma anymore. Um, that may have been the catalyst for it uh, and the animating energy behind it. But yeah, so that, that happened around 2015, uh, the summer of 2015, actually. And yeah, um, and that was my journey in that period. It was, I grew a lot. I think I just kept growing and didn't stop. Um, and I got I got stuck in certainty for a few years, but my body didn't want to stay there. I my consciousness didn't want to stay there, uh, and I needed to to move forward and to grow. And that led me to that night at my home group, um, where I had that inciting incident. And, um, you know, everything, everything changed. So you, you had that tension that you felt was starting to come out of you was years of accumulated, um, family pain and, um, and then career pain, um, as well as, um, having now these um neurodivergences mental health struggles that you're you're finally diagnosing and treating but being undiagnosed it just seems so confusing so you had all of these factors and then you decided you were going to go on a journey to to change it so that brings us to that that center point in the narrative and now it's it's moving from 2015 to today 2021 what were the steps that you took? You started with a spiritual director, then walk us through everything you've done in the last six years to get you to the place where you are today. Okay. <laughs> I think for me, then, yeah, I started, I started seeing my spiritual director on a regular basis. And, you know, sometimes it was, it was two or three times a month. Uh, and started, it was very much almost like therapy as well as spiritual direction. It was like spiritual therapy <laughs> in that I would turn up and talk and then they would reflect this back to me and give me some pointers and things. Um, I began to unload all of this stuff on her. Um, uh, and it was so therapeutic every time I did it. Um and you know we get then we get into 2016 now and we had the brexit vote and and then you know coming into the autumn i had an opportunity to leave my job to take redundancy and i've been in this job for 13 years uh and normally I would not have taken redundancy. But this time I did. This was new. This was a risk. I wasn't a risk taker before now. Um, um, and I wasn't a risk taker until then. And <laughs> maybe I always was, but I just didn't know it. And... Um, you see, I think initially I thought 
I'll do the spiritual direction and that will fix the problem. Um, and then I was looking to launch my book the next year, 2017. I was going to release my book and I was going to go into coaching, right? Coaching writers. And in my head, this was all going to happen. And I was going to suddenly become a best selling author and have a writing career and um, have a coaching career and do this all myself and, you know, and be this world success. And this would be me moving on from my past. Of course, in hindsight, I was looking for another form of certainty. <laughs> it's incredible, our addiction to certainty. We will find ways of finding some kind of certainty. Um, so that, so I, I left my job. Um, I went to America uh, with a friend, my best friend, which was my first time in America. I went to New York and went to... Um, uh, Detroit, went to Ann Arbor, went to Virginia Beach, which was really great because I wanted to go to America my whole life. Um, and I actually finally felt free of the system that I'd been in. Um, then I launched my book. Didn't do as well as I had hoped. Um, I launched, I tried to launch my coaching didn't work uh just it did, just didn't work i tried everything i worked really really hard uh both of those things and you know i will say though with my book that i got a lot of messages from people saying how much it had meant to them and how it changed their life um it didn't sell as many copies as i expected or wanted but the people who did read it a large portion of them were impacted by it so that was something that was validating in many ways, um, but it felt like a failure. And and what I realized actually is that everything was being stripped away. So all these pretenses that career could save me or that money could save me or that reputation could save me or success or anything else could save me um, were just all being stripped away. Like, so... Uh, and then I, then I started looking for jobs and I had about 10 interviews in a row where I came second. Like behind, like literally um, every single interview I went to told me like I was literally the next person in line. And that begins to get you down. Uh, it begins to weigh you down. And, you know, I was doing temping and things. I was, I, I was working, but I wanted a permanent job and the temping jobs weren't paying what I needed to pay to pay my mortgage. And, and I remember I, 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 I got to the point where I was like, well, I need to find a job this week or I'm going to be in trouble with my mortgage. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and I remember sitting on my sofa and just having nothing left. All the things that I had tried which I thought could save me, all the forms of certainty had just fallen away. Um, I was just left with me and myself and my pain. And that was the rock bottom moment. I had suicidal ideation. I thought about how I would kill myself. I envisioned throwing myself in front of a car or something. I didn't plan to do it. I didn't make plans to end my life. 
I never got that far, but it was on my mind. Um, and I was still actually in my church at this point. It was still six months before I left, I left my church. Um, and they were really helpful at that point. They um, took me out for a drink and had a, and spent time with me and supported me and encouraged me and gave me some advice and that was that was helpful. Um, that got me through. That week, I actually got a job, um, which was enough money to um, pay for to pay my bills and pay for everything, pay my mortgage, um, which was really good. Um, and that became a permanent job a few months later. Uh, and that was kind of the next couple of years. And then came the point where, and I've been talking about this with my spiritual director, that I needed to leave my church. And I knew I did. I, I knew. At this point, I couldn't even go into services. I, I went into the building, and then the, the church met in a school. So I went, I go into the foyer outside where the, the hall where we met. I could never go in. I physically, my body would not go into the, to, to the service. Um, the hymns were too, the, the lyrics of the hymns were too triggering in terms of theology. The, ser the sermons just, I couldn't, I couldn't worship. I couldn't sing. I couldn't raise my hands. I couldn't. It was actually trauma. I think it was actually a trigger. Uh, I think it was quite traumatizing for me to even do that. Um, what I didn't realize is that I had been basically being passive aggressively spiritually abused. Um, not one, not in a one-to-one -one kind of way, but in the context of that community. Um, I was showing up, I was saying all the right things, I was talking the right language, performing for everyone, and then just not able to go into the service. And people noticed as well, and they were concerned. Um, and I just kind of fobbed them off. Um, but I knew, I knew I had to leave even then. I knew. Um I think the time I knew I really had to leave was when I spent the whole service talking to somebody else who also wanted to leave. And we talked for so long, we didn't even notice the time going past. And by the time we were still talking when everyone came out of the service. And it was like, oh, yeah, I need to go. <laughs> um, and so I looked, I looked around and my spiritual director recommended this um, contemplative community. Um, very small very quiet, not many people, um, open, inclusive, no band, no theology of what you had to believe uh, necessarily. Uh, everyone could have their own journey. Met in a small Anglican church in London. And I remember going into the first into it the first time I went there. And I remember physically breathing out in a church setting and I realized I hadn't done that for years I hadn't breathed out and just been me in a community a spiritual community for years uh, and it was very tangible and the next week I went back to the other church I was still going to because I was in between uh, and 
I remember my body being all tensed up, like I was wearing this straitjacket. My body was literally bound up tense. I was standing up straight, like on on alert, like um, my whole body was tense. Um, I couldn't, I wasn't breathing properly. Um, I was kind of short on breath. And I was just following script. And I was like, whoa. I was like, I've been feeling this the whole time. And I haven't actually noticed before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, this has probably been going on for years and I hadn't even noticed because I hadn't had anything different. And I was like, whoa. <sighs> um, and so I told them I was leaving and they were quite understanding and, you know, more than I thought because I was quite afraid to tell them I was leaving. And most of them quite understanding and, you know, supportive. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a nice ending. And I haven't been back there since. My dad is still part of that church and it works for him. But um, I'm not, I'm not there anymore and I haven't been back. And I won't go back because it's too triggering and traumatizing. It's like going back to a you know, an abusive space. I couldn't go back there. So, um, yeah, that was the next couple of years. Um, finding a new, finding a new space, finding a new job, finding, um, finally getting to rock bottom. And then once I got the, to the rock bottom place or I had nothing left, then I was free to start growing and exploring mm-hmm. without anything holding me back. And without deluding myself that I could find answers in a form of certainty. And it was that was liberating. So even after you decided to work toward growth and healing and uncovering the layers of pain that had built up in your body, you still after that had significant setbacks on that journey. Um, so, you know, then adding to the layers of things you had to work through, um, sort of like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, which I imagine was frustrating. Um, What are some of the concrete healing tools and approaches that you've used in the last couple of years to move you forward in health? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I started doing work on my inner child with a confidence coach. I started getting to know my inner child and talking to him and getting to know him. Um, and listening to him. And that was really helpful. Um, and then I think Ironically, 2020 was a, a, you know, a huge year for me. Um, actually, I'll just backtrack. Um, I think one thing, there was this one final unlearning of certainty and moving on from the past was acknowledging that I had to sell my, my flat. Um, I sold my flat. I paid off all my debts. And I've been debt-free since I, since I left the flat. Um, 
and I moved out. Um, and that was almost like letting go of the final vestige of certainty in my life. And so that was quite liberating as well. And that's when I started working with this confidence coach. It was around the same time I started working with, with her. Uh, and that made a huge difference to me um, in lots of ways. Um, started thinking about my career again, started thinking about what I wanted to do. Um, I was able to travel. Um, I went to San Diego and just fell in love with the place. And I got to speak at a church and I worked with a book coach all day on telling my story because I knew that I want to tell this story. I want to share it with people. I want people to learn from my story. So I worked on that uh, and, you know, with no aspirations of in terms of career or whatever, it was just, this is what I want to do. Um, this is what I'm feeling like I need to do. And I was still my spiritual director at this point as well. And so, you know, then it came into, I mean, then it came into 2020 and that's when I started working with an embodiment coach and with a therapist and doing internal family systems therapy um, and EDMR therapy. Um, and, these, and the embodiment coaching and this go, kind of go together because it's about naming your body almost as a person. And so a he or she or they rather than an it. Uh, and talking to your body and listening to your body, listening to, I began to start listening to my intuition more. I began to discover more about being highly sensitive and what that meant and what that experience was like and educating myself on that, which had a huge impact on me. Uh, I was starting to be able to listen to my body more, uh, and that was incredible. Um, and in the internal family systems therapy, I was actually going into my brain and talking to parts of my brain, wounded parts and exiles, um, and making peace with them and listening to them and building relationship with them and doing a lot of healing work, doing a lot of unlearning. Uh, um, I started doing yoga. <laughs> um, the timeline's a bit messed up here. I, I'm, a lot of this stuff happened in the last couple of years. Uh, I probably can't remember exactly when, but it happened within the last couple of years, what I'm talking about. The embodiment work and the, and the therapy was, was 2020, definitely. Um, I had a transcendent spiritual experience after I'd started doing uh, yoga and being in this contemplative community for about a year. It went after I'd been in there for about a year. And this is important for my story because I, 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 I um, we were doing a Taizé chant and Taizé is in French. And my mother was a French teacher, was a French teacher. And I was getting some of the words wrong. 
and I was laughing. And almost, it was almost like she was there. And almost like it was the rest of the world wasn't there. And it was just, we were in our own kind of, our own space, almost disconnected from the rest of the world, out of time. There was this energy like around me, around us, really. We were just having this interaction in this moment together. Um, and I felt this around me all the way home. And I got home and I was like, what just happened? That was, that was a, I started journaling about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was like a transcendent experience with my mother. That was an experience of connection with my mother. And that was kind of when I started to realize that my, the way I was processing my grief was changing, that all the work that I've been doing with my spiritual director and with coaches and things, uh, and all the letting go of all those things that I'd built up as certainties in my life, had my grief had evolved. Um, because I don't believe that grief, I don't believe grief is a linear process that you kind of, or it's not something that gets fixed. It just changes and evolves. It's circular. And all those stages of grief that people talk about, they exist. They're real experiences, but it's not like a five-step process and then suddenly you're all, everything's sorted and your grief is gone. Um, that's not That's not my experience of grief. And it's not, the experience of grief that I've encountered in other people. Um, but it changes. Um, and my relationship with my mother has evolved into one of connection. And we have a very real connection. Uh, we have interactions sometimes. I can sense when she's around and sometimes a bit of music will come on when I just need it and it will remind me of her and it'll be like, well, that's just what I needed. Wow, where did that come from? You know, and and that was one. That was the first experience I had of understanding that. And uh, and since then, I've I've done a lot of reading around quantum entanglement and how uh, atom, how atoms can get get bound to our energy can get bound to to atoms and stuff. And I, I had this sense that maybe that's kind of what happened, and that. That's how I was connecting with my mother. And that's, it gave me a different idea of what eternal life might be, you know, and, um, and, you know, I've been educating myself on a lot of things and getting different perspectives and influences from different, different sources and the embodiment work, learning to talk to my body and listen to my body and listen to my intuition and follow my curiosity. Uh, and, learning how to talk to my 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 brain and my internal family systems uh, i've had this real experience of connection with myself and embodiment and um i really and i know that that my pain is no longer controlling me um i still have wounds and i will always have wounds and i will always be learning more about those wounds but what I did was I I took down an architecture around my grief, which was hiding me from my grief and my trauma. 
and I built one into my grief and my trauma, which allowed me to go in and out of it and explore it without it having the power to control me. So my grief and my trauma just no, no longer has the power to control me. Um, and that's that's real freedom. Because, because then, you know, that empowers you. And you're free to do the work. And you're free to do the work of growth. And you're free to discover who you've always been. I'm discovering who I've always been. Um... I am a risk taker. I am adventurous. Um, you know, I, I, there's things I've discovered about myself that I didn't even know were true about me. Uh, and embracing being highly sensitive in, and and loving that part of myself. And at the moment, I'm exploring my ADHD and that part of me and trying to understand that part of me. And... Um, making allowances for myself and in that respect and yeah it's it's like I'm still discovering myself and this last 12 months has been really difficult for everyone with the pandemic and I think for me um, with all my neurodivergent conditions, it's been even more difficult and, you know, being on my own a lot of the time. Um, I've got to, you know, I've been, people will know I've been struggling recently. If you follow me on Twitter. Um, but what I am not struggling with is, is my past. I am, that is not controlling me. I might, I, I will always have triggers from my past and I might have moments where I get triggered and where I go to those places uh, and where those places kind of try to get hold of me, but I have ways to get myself out. I have I have a network of friends who I can talk to, who I know I can contact if I need them. I am journaling every day. I, um, I have a therapist. I have a spiritual director. I have communities that are there for me. And I know what I, my body knows intuitively almost now how to get itself out of those moments because I have, I have trained myself, trained my brain, trained my body to be able to do that. Uh, and yes, of course I will have bad moments and bad periods like we all do. That's normal. Um, but I will, but I will be free of the control of my trauma. Um, there was one story that I'd like to tell, and, and at the end, um, about 18 months ago, I went to the village that my mother grew up. Um, it's where her ashes are scattered. There's this beach where she used to play as a child. Um, and there's some tennis courts nearby and um, there's a hill that overlooks it and it's, it's like quite enclosed um, and I'd never I'd never been there um, and since since she died I'd never been there and I'd never seen her ashes there I never got a chance to say my goodbye 
and we went there and when we stayed we stayed up there as a family like me my sister her partner my niece and nephew who have been part of my healing by the way <laughs> um they have been a big part of my healing their unconditional love um and the unconditional love that i've felt for them uh, opened me up um but when we don't we don't stay there with them and i saw my cousin on my mum's side and saw my my uncle her brother and then i got to walk on this beach where her ashes were on my own and almost um make peace with her and with her being gone and with all the work that i'd done up to that point and that was before i even did the embodiment therapy um you know but i'd done a lot of work by then and i was really already on the right path and growing and and free um i was already on that path then um and but to have that moment of making peace and saying saying goodbye in the sense of um i need to get on with my life because i can't let grief and trauma control me i can't keep reminiscing and going on back to the past all the time um that's probably not healthy uh and that was a moment where i got to say goodbye to her properly and i did it from a place of healing and growth and freedom and that was a really powerful moment that was an important moment uh and it was almost like validating all the work that i'd done and validating me going forward and continuing with that which i have done and yeah and here i am you know and i've been struggling to write this book and tell my story in a book because i really want to do that i feel like i have a message to share with people about healthy and unhealthy responses to grief and trauma uh, and what unhealthy responses can do to you and what healthy responses are and how they can set you free and everything around that and everything to do with embodiment and um and mental health and deconstruct faith deconstruction and personal transformation and i want to share that with people mm -hmm. and what i've told you today is the short version <laughs> of that it's um but i feel like telling this to you today may well hopefully it will help somebody who's listening to it um i really hope hope it does um but i think also it might it's important for me to to just just name it to just tell it out loud in a safe place and maybe that will help me to have more freedom to tell that story to others in a bigger way in a deeper way um in the next few years hopefully as i write this book of course we can't know the future, but to the extent that you can and are constructing a future for yourself, what do you envision as the next stage of the story? 
Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, so much is uncertain right now. Um, we've all been existing in the present and in the immediacy of the pandemic and lockdown and being at home. And I've been struggling with my emotional and physical energy and burnout and creative energy even and imagination. I know what I'd like to do. I would like to find some kind of way to financially to be able to make more time in my life to create things to write to to do more podcasts um i don't even talk about my podcast this is ironic <laughs> um because that was part of the journey probably as well but um yeah and to to explore this conversational gift that i seem to have in different ways um visual ways covering different topics different types of people maybe and seeing where that goes i'm curious as to where that goes um i'm curious as to other creative things i might be able to do and I'm not very good at the whole planning thing and being like, you know, writing down plans and sticking to them and envisioning my life and planning my life and working towards goals. I've never been very good at that, which is probably because of neurodivergence, um, I suspect. I'm being an Enneagram 4. <laughs> but uh, certainly I'd like to do all of those things. I would love the chance to be able to make things that I love and share them with people. Um, to have my own space to live, um, which has the, which is big enough for me to be able to have a space to create in my own home. Uh, I, yeah, and to keep following my curiosity and keep, keep trying to grow, keep doing the work, you know, keep doing therapy, keep doing embodiment work. Um, have a healthy relationship with my internal managers. Have a healthy relationship with my body. In every sense, including my physical health. Um, and one thing I've discovered about myself is that I, I want to make the most of every single moment. I didn't realise that I wanted to do that until recently um, in therapy. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's actually what I want to do. That's what I've always wanted to do. Maybe since my mother died, that maybe that maybe that's where it came from. But I want to make the most of every single moment and not waste any opportunity and follow my curiosity and see where that takes me. Um, and, you know, pra pra practically, I'd like to live somewhere that I love. I'd like to with people that I love. I'd like to have relationships. Um, you know, I partner. <laughs> uh, and I'd like to create a, li a, a life that I love. 
and which brings me joy. And when I'm constantly learning and growing and unlearning and, um, you know, because uh, I don't want to, I don't want to stop. I don't want to just stagnate. I don't want to fall back into certainty. And none of us should. Certainty is not healthy. Certainty will hold us back. It will control us like a passive-aggressive abuser. And we will not be able to deal with our pain. We'll just be hiding from it. And eventually the pain gets so much that we can't hide from it. And, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic and people are carrying a lot of grief and trauma. And I, I want to help people come to terms with it and explore it in a healthy way. Because if we can do that individually and as a culture, then we can all be transformed. And I want to play a part in doing that, I guess. That's a great plan. I wish you all the success in the world with that. Thanks so much for letting me listen to your story and put that out into the world. Anything you want to conclude with? Well, I'm grateful to you for sitting and listening to me tell this story, bearing witness to it. Um, I'm grateful for everyone listening, for bearing witness to it. Um, I hope it has provided some solidarity, some hope, some encouragement. Uh, and I just want I just want everyone to know that they're not alone and that it's okay not to be okay and it's okay to to name your grief and your trauma and to talk about it and process it and get professional support find a community who will support you and um, the possibilities are endless because you might end up meeting yourself and getting to know yourself and that's an adventure yeah absolutely well then that is us signing off till next time yes Thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you, Becky.